You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. If you come by my house at any given day or time, it's probably on the Andy Griffith Show. We watch it all the time as a family. We have them memorized. We can talk to each other as a family using lines from the Andy Griffith Show. And that show is is wonderful. It's funny. There are some very memorable characters. But I think one of the reasons this show has endured for so long is because one of the characters of the show is actually the setting. The town of Mayberry is part of the show. It's like one of the characters. It's a quiet, slow-paced town. There's not a whole lot of danger every now and then a bad guy will come down out of the, out of the hills and show up. But it's a uh, It's a place where the living seems easy and peaceful. And we watch that show and we think, oh boy, I'd I'd love to live in Mayberry. Can I tell you something? We don't live in Mayberry. In fact, the setting of our lives is really the exact opposite of Mayberry. There is... Danger, there is evil, there is hardship all around us. And we're going to begin a study this morning of the book of Daniel. And we're going to learn how you and I ought to live in the midst of a place that is not godly. Among people who are opposed to God. And so keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We are beginning this study. We'll be in this book at least for several months. I'm excited to begin this journey with you. Daniel Chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. When you found your place, I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, another title for the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we begin this study of the book of Daniel, we, we understand that we need your help. Lord, would you, would you come to our aid by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of your word, to apply your word to our lives so, we, so that it will make a practical difference in our day-to-day living. God, I pray that because of what we talk about here on Sunday will be so powerfully used in our life that it will change our Monday. God, would you grant that by your grace and for your glory. Such a joy to gather as a faith family and cry out to you, holy, 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 merciful, and mighty. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you love us. Now use this time, Lord, to further transform us into the image of King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The authorship of Daniel is well attested in Jewish and Christian tradition. It is held that Daniel wrote this book. That's why it is named Daniel. In chapters 1 through 6, Daniel refers to himself in the third person as he narrates the story. In chapters 7 through 12, he refers to himself in the first person as he passes on visions that God gave him. Jesus himself refers to Daniel's authorship in Matthew 24, verse 15. So we know that Daniel wrote this book. We also know that all Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, as the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16. So we know that the book of Daniel is the Holy Spirit of God breathing through the prophet Daniel to write down the words we have here in our Bible. And because the Holy Spirit inspired these words, we believe the book of Daniel is the very Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. He wrote exactly what God wanted him to write. And Jesus himself, during his time upon the earth, held this book to be the authoritative word of God. Because many times, he alludes to it throughout his ministry. He even takes on the messianic title, Son of Man, which is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. He also quotes Daniel often when referring to and describing end times events. We'll see that as the book Unfolds, But Jesus held that the book of Daniel was an authoritative book. Now here's what's interesting. If you remember our study of the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians neatly divided into two sections. 
Chapters 1 through 3 dealt with our wealth in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 dealt with our walk with Christ. Well, in like manner, the book of Daniel neatly divides into two sections. But not only do we see in the book of Daniel two different sections, the two sections are in actuality two different genres of literature. In chapters 1 through 6, we see narrative literature, where a story is being recounted. In chapter 7 through 12, Daniel is sharing some visions God gave him of the future. And so chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic by genre. So it's an interesting book in that in this one book, there are two very different types of literature. To, to be quite honest with you, chapters 1 through 6 are a preacher's dream. There are some great stories to preach in chapters 1 through 6. When you get, get to chapter 7, you're like, what just happened? Things shift, and it gets very complicated and complex, but interesting and fascinating and important. But the book neatly divides into two different sections. I would even say this. Part 1, chapters 1 through 6, is about faithfulness. Specifically, faithfulness in Babylon, an ungodly nation. The central theme in the first part of the book is this. It's possible to live out courageous faith and to be faithful to God when surrounded by evil. A needed word for today. It's possible to live out courageous faith and to be faithful to God even when surrounded by that which is ungodly. Part 2, chapter 7 through 12, is about the future. Part 1, faithfulness. Part 2, the future. Specifically, the future of the kingdoms of this world. Daniel is given visions that communicate where human history is headed. And the central theme of the second part of Daniel is God's sovereignty over kings and kingdoms and the ultimate victory of the ultimate king whose name is Jesus. The ESV Study Bible says this about part two of the book of Daniel. These visions demonstrate how carefully God has planned events and governs them for his perfect ends. Therefore, the faithful can recognize that none of their troubles take God by surprise. Isn't that good news? Nothing that you and I go through surprises God. And none will derail his purpose of vindicating those who steadfastly love him. We should be confident the second half of Daniel tells us, that God will ultimately triumph. And so the first half is about faithfulness, courage. The second half is about the future and confidence in God's rule and reign. That's what we're calling this study. Courage and confidence. That's what the book is about. I love this summary of the book by Alistair Begg. He writes, the book of Daniel is a record of what happened to God's people in the heart of an empire set up to deny and defy God. The story of the exiles told through the particular stories of four men. That's what this book is about. Now, to the immediate context, as we look at how the book begins, it says there in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. 
Now here's what's interesting. About a hundred years before this moment in history, there was a Judean king named Hezekiah. And at the end of his life, Hezekiah got a little bit proud, a little bit arrogant. And some visitors from the kingdom of Babylon came to visit. And Hezekiah opened up his treasuries and showed them all of his riches and all of his splendor. He showed them the Lord's house, the temple, the implements in the temple, and he really showed off his kingdom. As if to say, I am a great king. Look at me. The Lord says to Hezekiah, you are puffed up with pride. And because of your pride, because of you showing off your splendor and glory without pointing them to the glory of God, because of that, Hezekiah, one day in the future, there are going to be some people from Babylon that come back. And they're going to take all these treasures back to Babylon. And they're going to destroy the city and the surrounding areas. And 100 years later, about 100 years later, it comes to pass. The book of Daniel mentions it here. When Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Now the question might rise, why did God allow the Babylonians to overthrow Judea? Why did God send the Babylonians? Well, the Bible is very, very clear. The people of God had turned their back to God. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they had worshiped false gods and idols. They were unfaithful to God. And God warned them, turn back to me, turn back to me, turn back to me. I'm the one true God. But they kept turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to God's messages. And at some point they crossed a line in the sovereign heart of God. And he allowed this this powerful people, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to come and conquer the Jews. Now, it happened in stages or in waves. The, the verse here that speaks of Nebuchadnezzar coming against Jerusalem is the first wave or the first stage. But over three major, uh, three major campaigns, the Babylonians kept coming back to, to Jerusalem and they would destroy a little bit of the city They would conquer the people and take Jews captive with them back to Babylon. And finally, in 586 B.C., the final wave happens where the Babylonians completely destroy Jerusalem, burn down the walls, burn down the temple, and take more Jews with them into exile. This is the first stage. And the Bible says when when the Lord allowed the Babylonians to conquer the Jews, they took some of them back to Babylon, captives, slaves, exiles in a foreign land. And as we see the story unfold of some of these exiles who are in Babylonian captivity, we begin to connect because we see some things here that you and I can identify with, some, some takeaways, if you will, some practical takeaways that I think that we need to to, to focus on on the front end of this study because we'll see this more and more as the book unfolds. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you four lessons from this first passage in Daniel. Four lessons that directly connect with you and with me and with our lives in this world. Lesson number one. 
You ready? Okay, one person's ready. That's, that's not encouraging. Are you ready? Yes. Lesson number one. Like it or not, you live in Babylon. Like it or not, you live in Babylon. We don't live in Mayberry. Our society, our current culture is more like the nation of Babylon. Now notice what it says there in verse 2. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the powerful king and ruler of the Babylonian empire, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, a false god, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So he takes some of the implements used to worship the one true God and takes it back to a pagan temple. And then it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So he wants them to bring the people of influence from there in Jerusalem in the surrounding area of Judea. And it says there, specifically, verse 4, youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So, the implication here is this. Nebuchadnezzar commanded that some of the young people who were the best and the brightest in terms of their families and their background and even their appearance, to take them against their will back to Babylon. There's no indication that they had a choice in this matter. So here we find Daniel and three other Hebrew boys who are focused on living in a foreign land, far from the familiar, far from family, far from the temple where they worship their God, and all of a sudden they are surrounded by people who are opposed to their God, whose ways are antithetical to the ways of their God. And against their will, they are living in Babylon. Let me tell you about Babylon. Babylon was a place of pagan idolatry where the one true God was not feared. That's obvious because Nebuchadnezzar takes the, the furnishings from the temple and puts them in the, the temple of a pagan god. God was not feared in Babylon. Babylon was a place of pride fueled by human achievement. One of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the hanging gardens of Babylon. There's still ruins today where you can go and see what these, these hanging gardens consisted of. It was an architectural marvel. It was, these gardens were beautiful and known all over the world for their splendor. The Babylonians had great buildings and great cities and great accomplishments. And they were filled with pride. We'll see that later on in the book of Daniel. But to drive home this point, can I remind you of the ancient history of Babylon? There in the land of Shinar, we see this area show up in Genesis chapter 11. When humanity gathers together, and instead of obeying God and scattering and multiplying and filling the earth, 
They say, hey, let's get together and do our own thing. In fact, let's build a temple to the heavens. They began to build and to collaborate and and build this structure. There was pride of human achievement until God stepped in and and scattered them and, and caused them to speak different languages. They could not communicate but the, 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 the land of Babylon was founded in pride, pride of human achievement. Also, Babylon was a place of sinful decadence. The, the people in Babylon did not live by the, the morals and values of the God of the Bible. They lived lives that were evil and sinful and opposed to the ways of God. Babylon's mentioned in Genesis chapter 11. Did you know Babylon's also mentioned the last book of the Bible, Revelation? It's used as a symbol for decadent evil societies. That's how evil it was. It became symbolic of other societies that were opposed to God. But here's the takeaway that you and I need to understand if we're going to be able to... to, to glean some things from the book of Daniel. The spirit of Babylon is alive and well in our culture today. Did you hear what I just said? The spirit of Babylon is alive and well. I mean, think about it. Not fearing the one true God. Pride of human achievement. Morals that are antithetical to the truth of God's word. We live... Not in Mayberry. We live in Babylon. Like it or not, that's the setting that you are living in. That's the setting you are raising your family in. Now, there are two common responses to this reality, to the world in which we live. One response is, boy, I miss the good old days. I miss the good old days. I remember growing up in the 80s, I would leave my house on a summer day in the morning, link up with a couple of buddies that lived near me, and we'd stay gone all day long. Parents had no clue where we were, and we'd play. I'd come home about dinner time, dirty and hungry. I would not even fathom my kids doing that today because of the, the culture and the way it is, you got to know where they are and keep an eye on them, right? Things have changed drastically in our culture. And a lot of us, we say, oh, I don't like Babylon. Babylon's uncomfortable. I feel the pressure of living in Babylon. I miss the good old days. But listen to me. Simply looking back at the good old days doesn't help you to live in Babylon today. But there's another common response to living in Babylon. And this one is, boy, I'm worried about the future. I've had some of you tell me this. Hey, this world is what it is. I know Jesus. I'm going to heaven when I die. And I don't like the way things are, but... but, uh, you know, my, my, my direction in life is established and set. But I worry about my kids. I worry about my grandkids. 
and the society we're handing over to them and what they will experience that we did not have to experience. It's amazing that today our teenagers are facing things that were unthinkable when, when we were teenagers. And things are changing rapidly. So one response is, I miss the good old days. The other response is, I'm, I'm worried about the future. But listen, neither of those responses help us in the here and now. We've got to face up to the fact we live in Babylon. And we want to be faithful in Babylon. Which leads to the second truth. Babylon will seek to teach you its ways. Do you notice here that ancient Babylon was very intentional in trying to pass on its ways to these Hebrew boys that they took into captivity? Look what it says there in verse 4. The Bible says, Bring me youths without blemish, Nebuchadnezzar says. Good appearance. Skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to, watch this, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king had a specific goal. Gather the best and the brightest so we can pass on our ways, our values, our beliefs, and then we can leverage their skill for Babylon. They can serve Babylon instead of serving their God. And Babylon here, ancient Babylon, was very, very intentional. Nebuchadnezzar was very, very intentional about passing on the ways of Babylon. In fact, we see in the story, indoctrination, that's what it is. They're indoctrinating them with the ways of Babylon. And I don't think I have to spend a lot of time convincing you that we are bombarded with ungodly worldviews, values, ideas, and messages. We were talking about it in our Bible study this morning about all the different ways that, that the, the messages of this world come into our lives. I remember when I was a, a teenager, and being a teenager was challenging enough back in my day and we didn't have cell phones or social media I can't imagine how that would have affected my life when I was a teenager it would have added a degree of difficulty whether it was leverage for good or for evil it would have added a a degree of difficulty into my life because it's another avenue for us to be bombarded with the worldviews, the values, the ideas of this world in which we live. Babylon will teach you its ways. Just like there was indoctrination happening in ancient Babylon, modern day Babylon, the, the society in which we live spent, listen, spends millions and millions and millions of dollars and has the best and the brightest in our society figuring out how to indoctrinate you and how to indoctrinate your kids and your grandkids. 
And it's working. You say, well, Pastor Wade, how do you know it's working? Because we're losing the next generation. When you look at the generations, the generations that are coming behind us, fewer follow Jesus than the generation we are in. And each successive generation, the number goes down, 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 down. Babylon will teach you its ways. The bombardment, listen to me, the bom- look at me, this is important. The bombardment leads to the desensitization, uh, desensit- I'm sorry, desens- desensitizing of God's people. We're desensitized to all of this. And we just start accepting things that really do not line up with the scriptures. Babylon will seek to teach you its ways. Number three, Babylon will seek to change your identity. Look in verse 6. The Bible says, Among these were Daniel, some of the Hebrew boys. Uh, by all accounts, these are teenagers. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs, the chief servant of Nebuchadnezzar, watch this, gave them names. He changes their name from their Hebrew name and he gives them a Babylonian name. Not only that, the Babylonian name is tied in to the Babylonian pantheon of gods. So Babylon will seek to teach you its ways. We see indoctrination, but in this section of the scriptures, we see assimilation, assimilation where they're trying to assimilate their very identity into the ways of Babylon. Now, it's interesting to note what the Hebrew names of these boys meant and what the the, the Babylonian names they were given meant. The name Daniel simply means God is my judge. Speaking of the God of the Jews, Yahweh, the one true God. Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious, direct reference to their God. Mishael means who is what God is, speaking of the superiority of our God. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. Yahweh is a helper. So their names identified them as followers of Yahweh. Very, very clear. But let me show you what their names were changed to. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means, O lady, wife of the god Bel. Speaks of the wife of a pagan deity. Shadrach, formerly Hananiah, means I'm very fearful of God or the command of Aku, which is the moon god or was the moon god of Babylon. Meshach means I'm of little account or who is like Aku, who is like the moon god. And Abednego means servant of the shining one, servant of Nebo specifically, another pagan false gods. And so their names were chosen to reflect Babylonian deities. Now, let me just say this very quickly, and I don't want to make too much of this, but, but I believe if these four Hebrew young men who are now in heaven, they looked down and were able to, to know 
that we referred to three of them by their Babylonian names, they'd probably be disgusted. We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know the story, right? It's how we learned it growing up. And we'll use those names because there's a, a touch point of familiarity there. But in those boys' minds, our names are not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our names are Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, reflecting the worship of the one true God. He wanted to change their names. And he also gave them food and wine from the king's table, as if to say, I'm the one you should depend on now. I'm your source. He's changing their very identity. He's assimilating them so that they would become Babylonians. We see in this story assimilation. It kind of reminds me of the great young boxer Cassius Clay. Olympic hero, gifted boxer, turned pro, bright future. But he changed in terms of his religious orientation and became a follower of Islam. And to reflect that change, that identity change, he changed from Cassius Clay to what? Muhammad Ali. The name reflected a new identity. And this name is forced upon these Hebrew boys. These names are forced upon these Hebrew boys to to lure them into thinking of themselves differently. To give them a new identity. But here is what we're going to see over and over again in the book of Daniel. Under immense pressure, the Hebrew boys never lost sight of their identity as servants and representatives of Yahweh. They, they never buy into the lie that they are Babylonians now. They knew they were Hebrews, worshipers of the one true God. But there was great pressure for them to conform. There was great pressure for them to change their identity. And we can learn from Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. We can learn from them. Because we feel the same pressure in our society to be assimilated, to change our identity of of how we identify with, with our culture. And we learn from these boys that you can, under immense pressure, stay true to God. We see it over and over again. So, we need to settle the issue of identity by believing that who we are is who God says we are. That's what identity is all about. See, our society wants you to be confused on this issue. It wants people to think that they can find satisfaction by finding their identity in rebellion against God. Or they can find their identity in achieving a certain standard of living. But we as Christians must settle this issue. We've got to come to a place in our spiritual journeys where we say, I'm not my worst failure. I'm not my accomplishments or my achievements. I'm not what I own. I'm not what others say I should be. I am not confused. I am not hopeless. I am not doubtful. I am not impressed by the shiny things of this world. I am not breathlessly waiting on the world's affirmation. I will not lay down my life at the altar of secular humanism. Christian identity says, I'm a blood-bought child of God, forgiven of all my failure, 
a friend of God himself, a slave of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, amazed by grace, a part of the family of God, full of purpose and resolve. That's Christian biblical identity. That's what God says about you if you are a Christ follower. That's what's true of your life. Live in accordance with that. Don't allow yourself to be assimilated into an identity that is antithetical to the ways of God. And so, how do we connect with these four Hebrew young men? Like it or not, you live in Babylon. Babylon will seek to teach you its ways. Babylon will seek to change your identity. So here's the fourth takeaway and we'll be through. Here's what we need. We need more Daniels with courageous faith. We need more Daniels with courageous faith. Now look back in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now that little bit of information here, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, gives us sort of a timeline to understand Daniel's background. Because he was probably in his teenage years when he was taken to Babylon, which means that he was under the influence of the king who came before Jehoiakim. Now, who was that king? His name was Josiah. If you remember, under Josiah's leadership, they rediscovered the Bible, rebuilt the temple, began to to observe the Sabbath again, And there's a great renewal in the land driven by the truth of the word of God. And Daniel, who was probably part of the royal family, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Daniel lived in Jerusalem and Judea. And he spent his formative years watching a great king lead his people in truth and righteousness. I believe Daniel was directly influenced by King Josiah. Not only that, we also know based upon the timeline that before this first attack by the Babylonians, Jeremiah had begun his preaching ministry. And I believe that Daniel heard Jeremiah preach. So how do you account for the fact that Daniel was so faithful in the face of intense pressure to conform. I believe Daniel was a product of the influence of the Word of God. He was exposed to the truth of God's Word, and that shaped him and prepared him for the attempt that Babylon would make to change his identity and assimilate him into Babylonian culture. So what does that mean for us? It means that to produce courageous Christians, Daniel-like Christians that are living in Babylon faithfully, we need family and church strategies that expose the next generation to the Word of God. Listen, there's nothing more important for us to focus on. As a church... In our ministries, in our families, we must develop and, and by God's grace, carry out strategies 
that put the word of God before our young people. So that they are shaped in their formative years by truth. Not by Babylon, but by truth. And if they are shaped by truth, then they are equipped to live faithfully in Babylon. To exemplify courageous and confident faith. Listen to the words of J. Sidlow Baxter by way of encouragement and challenge. He writes... A godly example and influence are never without power over someone. There is almost always, listen, dear friends, listen. Senior adults, listen. Meeting adults, listen. Young adults, listen. There's almost always some young Daniel watching and listening. Here's a ministry which we can all exercise. We need not be kings or prophets. What a power can be wielded by the godly example of a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend, a teacher, a business associate. Let us take heed, and if we have become discouraged, let us also take heart. In other words, listen to me. God can use you to influence the next Daniel. And to equip the next generation to go out there and live courageously for King Jesus. You have that capacity. Hey, look at me. You can't imagine the power of you even stopping in the hallway at church and speaking to a young person. You can't imagine what difference that makes. You know why I know that? Because I'm a product of that. I grew up in a small little Baptist church, mainly senior adults. I had no youth ministry. It was me and the pastor's daughter. We were the youth ministry. But those folks loved on me and spoke to me and cared about me and taught me the word of God and shaped my life in the formative years. In other words, there needs to be a paradigm shift. I want you to hear me. Instead of coming to church saying, what can I get out of it? Give me the music I want. Give me the preaching I want. Give me the ministries I want. We should come to church saying, what can I give? Who can I influence? Who can I shape to live faithfully in Babylon? That should be our mindset. That should be why we come to encourage one another, exhort one another to love and good works. And so to produce, produce courageous Christians, we need family and church strategies that expose the next generation to the word of God. And here's the takeaway for everyone in the room. We all need courage to stand for Jesus when pressure to conform. Not only do we want to raise the next generation of Daniels, we want to be Daniels, Right? Because everyone in the room, tomorrow or even this afternoon, you're going to be pressured to conform to the ways of this world. You're going to be indoctrinated and and, 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 and there's going to be an attempt to assimilate you into the ways of Babylon. Ungodly ways. And you've got to stand courageously against that. And confidently against that. 
like Daniel. So we all need God-given courage to stand for Jesus when pressure to conform. Because here's what Emerson said, the great poet. For nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. When you live for Jesus in Babylon, it's not going to be popular. And you'll feel the, the weight of that. You'll feel the, the, the angst of that when people turn on you. And that's when you'll need the courage of Daniel. But before we close, I want to say just one quick thing. Daniel and Hanani and Azariah and Mishael, they are heroes of the faith. Heroes of the faith. We need to learn from them, emulate their example. But can I just remind you that those Hebrew young men are not the heroes of the book of Daniel? The hero of the book of Daniel is King Jesus. We're going to talk about a fiery furnace. And we're going to see there was one in the fiery furnace with them. One like the Son of Man, King Jesus, was with them in the fire. We're going to talk about a lion's den. Daniel surrounded by fierce, hungry lions. But we're going to be reminded that the lion of the tribe of Judah kept their mouths closed and preserved Daniel's life. We're going to talk about kings and kingdoms and empires and and kings rising and kings falling. But we're going to be reminded that the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will one day come on the clouds, his name is Jesus. And he'll set everything right. And can I tell you this? When Jesus returns on the clouds, your confidence and your courage in living for him will have been worth it. And so the hero of Daniel is Jesus. And we'll see that over and over and over and over again. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.